in righteousness and all the people in his faithfulness. Well, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, please help us now by your Spirit to see you more clearly, that we would delight in your rule. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of my wife Sarah's special talents is 25 words or less competitions. And about 18 months ago, she managed to win two tickets to an outdoor concert in the Hunter Valley Vineyard. The show was called A Day on the Green, and it features such past masters of pop as Daryl Braithwaite, Russell Morris, and Richard Marks. And the whole thing was headlined by none other than the voice himself, John Farnham. Now, when Sarah first told me she had won the tickets, I've got to admit, I didn't really jump at the prospect of going along. I mean, I don't mind a bit of John Farnham, but is he really worth the trouble of finding babysitters, driving up to the Hunter Valley on a Saturday night, you know, got church the next day, all that kind of thing? In the end, Sarah arranged to go with her mum. I'd stay home with the kids. Everyone was happy. But in the days after the concert, it became quickly apparent to me that, boy, did I miss out. Sarah raved about it. John Farnham entered high rotation on our household playlist. Take the pressure down. Two strong hearts. That's freedom. Could a Saturday afternoon sing-along on a picnic rug in the Hunter Valley get any better? How did I let myself miss out on singing along with Farnsey? You're the voice, try and understand it. Well, friends, today we're looking at one of the great songs of God's people. And while you may have no sympathy for me missing out on singing along with the voice, one thing I do want you to care about is that you don't miss out on singing along with this song. Psalm 96 is a song that calls us to delight in the glorious, saving reign of God. It's a song that calls us to sing because the news that our God reigns over creation is so wonderful that when we truly comprehend it, it becomes impossible to keep it within ourselves. This is the first of a three-week series that we're looking at over the holidays. We've entitled it A Very Big God. Uh, And we'll be looking at three different psalms on that theme before we then return once more to finish off our Galatians series in term term three. And so it'd be good to have Psalm 96 open there in front of you as we hear what God has to say to us through it today. Well, the psalm begins in verses one and two with a repeated call to sing. Three times the call goes out, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. So an exuberant note is struck right from the beginning. But I want us to reflect for a moment on those first two calls there in verse 1. In particular, what's the psalmist asking for when he says that it's a new song that should be sung? Because the point is not that we should always be trying to come up with fresh lyrics and music for the songs that we sing at church and that old hymns should be blacklisted. Writing church, new church music is great, of course, and so is singing older songs and hymns. 
But the psalmist is actually saying something quite different here and quite wonderful. The clue lies in the second line of verse 1, where we see the idea that parallels that new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth, the second line says. So when you put together those first two lines, you see that what the psalmist is crying out for here is that all people would sing praise to God. It's a new song, in other words, because people from outside God's old covenant people Israel will be singing it for the first time. Where the songs of the pagan nations were previously devoted to debauchery and brutality and war, now the psalmist calls on them to turn to the Lord and devote their songs to him. What's more, if you were to turn your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 16, you'd see that verses 2 to 13 of this psalm almost entirely copy the middle section of a song that King David wrote for the musicians of Israel to sing in Israel's worship, just at that moment when the Ark of the Covenant was first brought into Jerusalem. But to the psalm that we're looking at today, verse 1 has been added. It's not there in David's original song. Now the point is, by adding this verse, the psalm has been repurposed. It's no longer just a call for the Israelites to sing at the temple. No, it's a song that now that all people can join in and sing. So this psalm is a great missionary song. It's an invitation for everyone from all corners of the globe to come and delight in God. And so it's worth reflecting here at the start, how much are the songs that have captured your heart, the songs of the surrounding culture, and how much are they the song of the Lord? The songs we sing, they're a powerful expression of our emotions and our affections. What do we love? What do we fear? What drives us? Now, of course, you can enjoy a song without agreeing with every part of it. You can appreciate its artistry, or it can just be plain, simple fun to sing along to. I'm not saying he never listened to a song by a non-Christian or something like that. But do be aware that songs do work on us. They get under our skin and they shape our desires. Sinatra's I did it my way, can easily become a creed that justifies selfishness. Just as Queen Elsa's call to let it go can legitimize the quest to find your true self within yourself rather than looking to Christ. I'm sure you can think of other examples. Well, from the second half of verse 2, then down to verse 6, the focus of this psalm shifts. Uh, from the vertical to the horizontal, from Godward to humanward. And the main thing we see here is that the Lord's greatness is such that those who truly know it simply can't hold it in. It's like a birth announcement or an engagement, such good news that, you, that when you hear it, you've just got to share it. Proclaim his salvation Declare his glory, his marvellous deeds, the psalmist urges in verses 2 and 3. 
which is probably a reference to the same thing. His salvation is his glory and his marvellous deeds. And we know, don't we, our God is a rescuer. Our God is a God who saves. In 1 Chronicles 16, we see that it was God's regular deliverance from the pagan nations that surrounded Israel that David had in mind when he first wrote these words. But those specific instances reveal God's deeper character. Saving his people is just what he does. It's an overflow of the other person-centered love that has always existed within himself back through eternity and forward into eternity as well. And so when God came to earth as a man, what's the name that he was given? Jesus, the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. Our God is the great rescuer. And this salvation ought to be proclaimed everywhere, the psalmist says, and every day. Every person on the planet needs to hear of it. They need to hear of it because without him, we are all drowning at sea, swamped by our sin. We all need to be rescued. But we also all need to hear of it simply because we have been made to enjoy glorious things. And nothing is more glorious than the Lord himself. I was up at Narinek at Katoomba not long ago, looking out over the Jamison Valley just before sunset. Sheer sandstone cliffs to the left, a ruined castle and Mount Solitary to my right, King's Tableland out in front, and up above, dark, brooding clouds sending out occasional brilliant flashes of lightning. It was utterly spectacular. And it was just thrilling to sit there and let my eyes take it all in. Well, the psalmist says here in verses 4 to 6 that the Lord himself is utterly spectacular. While all the other gods humankind has cooked up are just worthless parodies, the Lord, the God of Israel and the God of the Bible, really is there and he is both mighty and majestic. It's thrilling just to behold him, to sit there and let your eyes take him all in. He is worth running to the nations for and proclaiming every day. Look at how he's described there in verse 6. Splendor, majesty, strength, glory, which could just as easily be translated beauty, now imagine coming across something that combined all of those things. It almost is unimaginable, I think. Usually when we think of unbridled strength or power, say a mighty army or a world leader, it's not long before we think of brutality, corruption, ugliness. And when we think of majesty or beauty, we often think of being delicate and precious and impotent. It's either the bomb or the rose. Perhaps the closest we can get of an image that does combine these things is a lion, C.S. Lewis's chosen image in Narnia. 
But in the Lord, we see this combination in all its fullness, strength and splendor, might and majesty. In strength, he set the heavens in place. In strength, he defeats his enemies. And in the utter goodness of his provision of our needs and for our salvation, his love is a thing of beauty to behold. And it's as I reflect on these verses that I'm once again reminded of one of the main causes of our lethargy in evangelism. These words of the psalmist seem quite foreign to us, I think, quite foreign to our experience at least. And as a result, I think we lack that desire to run to the nations, to run to the unbelievers around ourselves and proclaim the saving message of Christ. Sure, we know enough of him to trust in him for our salvation and to pray to him in our times of need. But we don't really get the thrilling magnitude of his might and majesty. I know my own concerns are so often tied up with smaller day-to-day things. What do I need to do to get through the day? And my imagination is also often captured by smaller things. Dreams about TV show plot lines or my football team winning a premiership. Oh, may God in his grace bring us fully to grasp his might and majesty that we would be unable to keep it to ourselves. Now in verses 7 to 9, the psalm's focus shifts again. Having just urged God's people to go to the unbelieving people of the nations, the psalmist now directly speaks to those unbelievers. It's all you families of nations, he addresses, verse 7, as in all you different people groups and nationalities. And the essence of his call to them is, is for them to give the Lord uh, his rightful place in their lives. We just heard the wonderful truth of his might and majesty. Now the call is that they would acknowledge these things in the way they live. Ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, he repeats. And what's to be ascribed to him? Glory and strength, verse 7. The glory due his name, verse 8. And what this looks like practically is tribute and trembling. Verse 8 speaks of the tribute. Bring an offering and come into his courts, it says. Uh, That word offering is not talking about sin offerings, the kind where an animal was slaughtered to atone for sin. Rather, it's a different kind of word for offering. The thank offering, where where you would bring the best of your produce as a gift of gratitude to the Lord. It's also the same word used for the gift of tribute, used to pay respects to a king. So the psalmist is saying, if you really get who you are dealing with here, you would bring him your best, you would pay tribute to him. In the New Testament, this kind of offering is the one mentioned in the letter to the Hebrews as, uh, as our praise and our good deeds. Uh, it says this, Through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others. 
So that's the tribute. Then verse 9 speaks of the trembling. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth, it says. Pictured here is the physical expression of deep awe and reverence. Worship here quite literally is bow down. It's a physical expression. Now, this kind of trembling is not inconsistent with the delight in the Lord in this psalm. It's hard, I think, to hold these two ideas in our minds at the same time because it's not really the way we're used to thinking in the 21st century. But as the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said, there is a sacred trembling which is quite consistent with joy. The heart may even quiver with an awful excess of delight. It's only in the experiencing of it, I think, that we can really understand how these two things, tribute and trembling, combine. Now, there are two implications of this part of the psalm for us. Firstly, do we urge our unbelieving friends like this? Did you catch the urgency of tone in which the psalmist speaks? Recognize God for who he is. Far too often when I speak to unbelievers about Christ, I hear myself failing to convey that this really is a matter of urgency. I'm not talking about being disrespectful here, of course, but far too often we merely present the gospel as if it's just one other lifestyle option. Secondly, does God have this place in our lives? Do you bring him tribute Bring him praise with both your lips and your lives. And do you come to him trembling with awe? While it is a wonderful truth that through Jesus we can know God intimately, it's a mistake to think that this means that we can get casual with him, that it's a relationship of equals. Well, in the final four verses of the psalm, we see the psalm reach its climax. Here, the writer calls forth from all creation the unconstrained expression of joy in the Lord's coming judgment. Now, once again, we have here two concepts that can sit quite uneasily for us today. Joy at judgment. That sounds a bit warped, doesn't it? Who takes pleasure in the pain of another, in others getting condemned? But to think of it this way is to come at things from entirely the wrong angle. Because if people are to flourish, precisely what we need is peace and stability and the elimination of all wickedness. And that's exactly what the Lord brings here in his kingly judgment. So verse 10 links his coming judgment with the stability of the world under his reign. And verse 13 speaks of his judgment as being righteous and faithful. In other words, the Lord will judge perfectly. He himself is incorruptible. I mean, what bribe could ever tempt the Lord who possesses everything? Uh, He sees all and he knows all. There is no wickedness in him and all that is a cause for joy think for a moment of the black lives matter movement 
What is at the heart of this movement's concerns? Equal treatment for all by those who enforce the law, regardless of race. Now, who knows if that can ever be perfectly achieved while sinful, limited men and women don police uniforms and sit at judges' benches. But here's one thing we can be sure of. Before our perfect and righteous Lord, just and fair judgment is guaranteed. And that is a cause for joy. So, says the psalmist, let all creation rejoice together at his judgment. Let the heavens and the earth, all the seas and the farmlands, the trees of the forest, all the different spheres of creation come together to celebrate. Perhaps the image that we're meant to have in our minds here is that of a great choir singing together. Or if you prefer, a great crowd at a football game singing in, uh, joining in on singing the club song. The angels of the heavens join with the roar of the seas, the animals in the field and the songs of the birds in the trees. That's the picture that the psalmist is painting. Now the question here is, where are you in all this? Are you among the choir or are you among the condemned? Well, if you trust Christ, this song is yours to sing. You are part of the choir. In John chapter 12, Jesus speaks of his death as the time of judgment for this world. If you trust Christ, the condemnation you deserve for your sin has already been taken by Christ at the cross. The time of judgment has happened. And on the day when he returns to judge the whole earth and finally do away with wickedness, you will take your place with him in God's perfect, renewed creation. And so for those of us who trust Christ, this joy in God's judgment with which the psalm ends goes hand in hand with God's great saving act that can't help but be shared that the psalm began with. So as we close, the great invitation here is for us to join in this celebration. There's a slogan from a t-shirt that did the rounds a few years back, and it said something like this. If Christ is in your heart, someone should notify your face. Friends, many of us trust Christ. We know that he has taken away our sin and he reigns on his throne but we haven't really joined in the celebration. We're off to the side of the party, sipping out drinks and trying to look cool while everyone else dances away. But the call today is don't miss out. See the Lord for who he truly is, the great saving king, mighty and majestic, whose judgment will one day bring an end to all wickedness. See who he truly is and delight wholeheartedly in him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for all the goodness of your reign, your saving work, your might and majesty, your perfect justice. Help us to see you more clearly and so rejoice in you 
even as we tremble, that we would delight to share your news of your salvation with those who need to hear it. Amen.